If you see a reporter and they quote, they're quoting someone and they include the and so's, the likes mm. and the ums, to me, that should be, your radar should be going up. Why am I including those? Now, does there are some reporters, there are very, very few that do this, that always include the likes and ums, no matter what. They will quote you directly what you said, which I think is some form of integrity. But it's very difficult to do because you're going to quote a lot of people. You're naturally not picking up on the ums. Um, so usually you take those out because it's easier and frankly, it, it doesn't make the person look bad. Um, so when they're included, there's usually an agenda. An agenda. It's trying to make them look ditzy or unsure or at the New York Times. Well, so <laughs> that's where like you take a quote out of context, include the and so like ums. Um, I think you're driving it. And then you're like, what are you talking about? I just reported I just accurately what, you said. what like, happened. <laughs> sure, you did, but you had a part. And so look, um, yeah. you want to quote me there? You're going to have my answer. Look, um, like that's a thing that people say. And I'm fine if they do it every single time. But I don't think, You just want consistency. I don't think and that's you want, traditionally the case. You want equal treatment across all people. Welcome back to Yang Speaks. This is your co-host, Zach Grauman. On today's episode, just when you thought we were done talking about this mayor's race, the New York City Board of Elections threw a curveball at us uh, and has disputed and corrected the results. So Andrew and I talk a bit about what is actually happening uh, in the final results of that race. And also, the one and only Carly Riley is back by popular demand. We talk about this Facebook case um, with the FTC. We talk about the media's new boogeyman. And we even drop a little bit of free Britney in there, which is not something I'm particularly passionate about, but I did learn a lot. Um, and I think you guys will too, because Carly is always dropping knowledge. So tune in right now. Andrew's here. Carly's here right now on Yang Speaks. And we are back. And uh, I'm here in, in part to express my enthusiasm for the fact that it looks like I underestimated the possible impact of ranked choice voting on the New York City mayoral primary, where uh, Catherine Garcia may have a chance to overtake Eric Adams, which as someone who endorsed uh, Catherine heartily as my number two choice and encouraged my supporters to uh, rank her second, this would be a welcome development. There has been a lot of confusion about what is going on with the, the vote count as of this moment. So yesterday, the Board of Elections said, hey, we screwed up. We counted over 100,000 dummy votes in the count that we released, um, which is right. I mean, the, the numbers did not match up. I have to say this is very bad for public confidence that if you're going to share information, uh, you'd hope that someone would notice that the numbers did not line up. Uh, there was another thing that uh, I thought, and I, I believe that Maya may have made an announcement to this effect, which is that without the absentees, you don't know the precise order of elimination, uh, where it, it did not make much sense to me that you would do uh, 
an, an elimination of the lowest vote getting candidates until you had all the votes. Um, because it is possible that the order of elimination changes based upon who the absentees vote for. Um, and so the simulation may not be helpful. Uh, and so, th so those are two things that are very, very frankly confusing. Um, and uh, I don't think the BOE uh, would do it the same way if they, they had a, a redo. Um, but I will say that it looks like the result is still very much in question, which is not what I thought earlier, but it looks like I was wrong. And I would be the first person to uh, be excited about <laughs> about being wrong in this context. Um, and th this could become a massive celebration of the virtues of ranked choice voting. Uh, I just hope the process holds up. I'm disappointed that this is one of the, this is probably the biggest ranked choice voting election we've had. And we now have people questioning the results, so that's not great. Um, we need to get this right. Here's the other thing. I'm curious your thoughts on this. This was where my head went. It's like, okay, we are the Democratic Party. We believe that the free markets don't solve a whole bunch of things that government is needed to intervene at certain points. Some, a lot of Democrats believe in massive government, right? Um, and government solving problems. If we can't count votes, how can we expect to sell the Americans that we can do healthcare or uh, smart regulations or navigate AI? That's, you know, like if we're talking about lack of trust, like this is a blow in my opinion. I don't know. I don't even think of that. Um, you know, we had this in Iowa too, you know, and, it was, uh, and it's really deflating. Um, I don't know where your head is and if it's a leadership thing, if it's a party thing, if it's just a lack of trust, uh, just human error. I don't know what you think. Yeah, I, I agree, Zach. Uh, it's a problem if we can't get the process right. And it's not like this is the first time this has occurred either for the BOE or even in your and my experience uh, in Iowa where they had trouble counting the votes. If you can't project confidence when it comes to uh, election outcomes, it's very hard to uh, project confidence about a lot of other more complicated tasks. Um, so to me, this should be something that you take pains to get right. And then if you are going to deliver a public statement, you have to be certain that uh, it's going to build confidence and not undermine it. Yeah. Like if you screw up, <laughs> statement number one is screw up. Statement number two better be right. Um, and that doesn't seem to be the case. The New York Times had like a scathing piece today on, I think they resurfaced an older piece about um, the problems of the board of elections where people were just like clocking in and leaving and um, not really doing any work and it's kind of failed government bureaucracy. And I think to me, it was just an epitome of um, like a perfect crystallized example of why you were running. You're like, I don't think our leaders are going to save us. And part of that is like, they can't even count the votes. Like they're, um, we need smart, um, thoughtful, forward thinking minds, nonpartisan minds, frankly, in, in these leadership positions, because they affect us. I want to build on the virtues here, man. Like I, I did not think the rank choice voting, um, uh, outcome could be this different from the top line uh, based upon all of the stuff that I'd seen, the previous simulations, uh, the size of the gap, um, the fact that voters I'd talked to uh, did not vote along um, purely ideological lines. Um, but it looks like our endorsement, our team up, it looks like my alliance with Catherine and my endorsement of her may actually have made the difference both in having her 
finish ahead of Maya as number two, and then maybe even finishing ahead of Eric as number one. And if that happens, to me, it would be the most powerful demonstration of ranked choice voting in action. Uh, I hope this comes to pass. Uh, right now, if you hold uh, hold something up to me and ask me, like, you know, what do I think is going to happen? Uh, it seems like it's about a 50-50 shot. Um, but being optimistic now, I, I, I think that ranked choice voting and Catherine Garcia are going to prevail. Um, but that's, you know, that, that that's me talking more uh, about... Uh, what I hope will happen in in many ways. Still very exciting uh, and wanted to take this opportunity to say, uh, hey, ranked choice voting uh, really could end up being this massive difference maker in this election. And uh, I hope this stands. And I'm thrilled that I might have been someone who helps break ground in terms of candidates cooperating with each other that may even have uh, changed the outcome. I agree. That is the that is the silver lining here. Um, and the ranked choice voting stuff's fun because the press doesn't know particularly what to cover because a front runner doesn't mean front runner. And it's a good thing, I think, if you have you know a strong base of people all around one candidate, but the vast majority of people don't want that candidate. Someone like you can be like, hey, the right thing to do is say, like, this person and I, you know, we have our differences, but we'd be directionally accurate. So I'm gonna put her as my number two. And that's what happened here. So I'm hoping to that we get our you know what together and get these votes counted the right way and that we trust the results. All right, back by popular demand, the wizard, the oracle, Carly Riley. Welcome back to Yank Speaks. <laughs> Thank you. I feel like I've been back so many times at this point that the intro is the same every time. It's starting to get uh, redundant. Is that getting old? You know? You're back. But I appreciate it. Guess who's back, 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 back again. Yeah, yeah. Cardi's back. All right, I'm done. So we got a few things to talk about, but I want to start with this one that we were talking about before this episode. I feel like the media's got a new boogeyman. <laughs> Or you feel oh. like that and convince me that it, you were right. And it's not you or me. You mean like we're not the boogeyman? Yeah, I was kind of joking because of some Twitter spats we had earlier this week. New York Times didn't like our last episode, y'all. Coming at me on Twitter. <laughs> we can get into that too. But I do think, um, look, we talked about it in the mayor's race. We talked about the presidential race. And I think we're talking about it now. So the, the narratives that our press drives and... Uh, CNN is under some heat right now because it seems that their newest narrative they're going to drive is climate change. It's not just CNN, MSNBC, a lot of the mainstream media. And if you look at the the two narratives that seem to be coming through in anything you're reading is both crime and I think now you're seeing climate change around this uh, well, this big heat wave and like who's to blame or who's the wrong side of this or what the boogeyman or the bad thing. What are you seeing here? Talk to me. I think you and I started talking about this at one point because some anchor at CNN or I, I don't even know who it was, but somebody said something about the fact that this Miami housing or this condo that collapsed in Miami right. collapsed because of climate change. And you had Fox News being like, Go this nuts. is ridiculous, yeah. you know, whatever. I have no idea whether or not that's true. But what it would make me think of was the Project Veritas clips that were released I don't know, a few months ago now, people may or may not know what I'm talking about there. Project Veritas is like a right-wing media watchdog 
organization that does a lot of like going undercover and secretly recording Democrats saying stupid things. And then they put it online. You know, some of it I find quite stupid and dishonorable. A few months ago, Project Veritas. This is actually sad. We should also talk about why this is sad. Project Veritas, one of their employees, some whatever pretty woman matched with a CNN employee on Tinder like intentionally ends up going on like five dates with this dude, records them all, gets this tech employee at CNN to say all sorts of things about how (laughs) CNN was clearly trying to get Biden elected, how their sole mission as an organization was to make sure Trump wasn't reelected. So of course they put all these videos online and conservatives go crazy and they're like, look, see how biased CNN is. Uh, In any case, you know, Fine. Okay. Whatever. Nobody is surprised, frankly, that CNN was trying to get Biden to win. Look, that was these guys. I'll, I'll preface this conversation. I don't have a problem with, and I don't think anyone should really have a problem with like our mainstream media driving narratives and being businesses. We've set them up as for-profit well, companies. I don't like it, yeah. but it's the game they play. We shouldn't expect anything different. They can say what they want, free country, but we need to be aware of it, which is why we're talking about this. I'm not like faulting certain. You know, other people can. Sure, sure. Yeah, I, look, I don't, as much as I may on Twitter sound like I hate the media, I, I have a love-hate relationship me with too, them, I would describe it sure. more as. I love them but, when they say okay. great things about me and you and Andrew. Yeah. <laughs> and I hate them when they yeah, don't. Yeah, and when they say great that's, things about Andrew, it's great. <laughs> okay, no, no, but here, here's what I was going to say. So as part of these leaked Project Veritas videos in which this insider at CNN said what he said, one of the things he noted was that moving forward, climate change was going to become the new boogeyman in the absence of Trump in a new era where you have democratic leadership and all of these sites need to have like new things to go after to galvanize their viewers. Climate change was going to be the new thing they were pushing over and over and over again on the network. Now, look, uh, great. I obviously think climate change is very real. It's very much a problem. I'm not at all opposed to us pushing this narrative and trying to galvanize people around it. But I will say that in In CNN's effort to attack this macro problem, inevitably, they're going to have news coverage that on like the micro level, like an individual piece of coverage may or may not be true, may or may not be reliable because they have a broader agenda, a broader narrative around climate change that they're trying to push. Again, that's great. But like, let's be discerning media literate consumers and know that any one given piece of information we're getting about climate change or any one given piece of information we're getting on this, you know may or may not be the whole well, truth. I, I think there's a good argument that the last thing this country needs is to politicize climate change uh, because it's going to hmm. affect us all uh, no matter what. Uh, like <laughs> if the planet's yeah. warming up, it's not. <laughs> the hurricane doesn't care if you're a Republican or a Democrat. Yeah. <laughs> so that is is slightly terrifying. And I want to say like, I don't, you know, um, one of the things we learned, and we've talked about a bit, it's like not just what the media covers. Because I think a lot of them, they get sued when they're like factually inaccurate. Um, they do have a lot of incentives for them to report facts. But the problem is, it's both what, you, know, you can say something that's factually correct, but not necessarily be broadly with context correct. It's not only what they cover, what they don't cover, right? Of all the world, sure. all the things they keep pushing like... Lies by omissions. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think I, I'm slightly more cynical maybe than you are, which is I think they actually lie with impunity. And the problem is that you most people aren't going to take the effort to sue them. And so a lot of that is allowed to just go ahead. Uh, like, I, like That's really what I've learned in the last however many months is how often people don't fight bad stories because it takes yeah. a lot of work. Well, and you went off on this. That, that on then... 
Well, Carly went off. Carly went on a rant. We're gonna so post a the, thread. The backstory, actually, this is connected. This is connected to you getting you know, sort of some flack from the New York Times reporters. I saw a thread by a New York Times reporter talking about the last episode of Yang Speaks. And I found her tweets on it just like really obnoxious and and fit in this like fit perfectly into what I find frustrating with the New York Times, which is they say these things like they're being neutral, but there's actually a whole side of the story that they're not covering. And they are kind of snide about it. So this New York Times reporter tweeted something that to my mind fell in that category. And it just like, brought this deluge of feelings text me her thread <laughs> onto me. Like at like, you know, like 10 o'clock last night. And she was like, I did a thing. Um, and it was yeah. about the, it I was went, about the business insider <laughs> piece um, yeah. that came out in January, 2021, beginning this mayor's race. What would you like to add, Carly? I feel like you said a lot of what you needed to say, but for those of you who are on Twitter, lot. which is most of America, yeah. thoughts? We can link to the thread if people want to see what I said, I, I, I guess I would say two things. Um, one, I would say actually the list that I, everything that I said on that Twitter thread is actually still not entirely comprehensive. I, I, I intentionally didn't defend you specifically or the allegations against you, Zach, because we're dating. And I've tried to stay away from that so as to not appear like I'm just like seeking vengeance for mm-hmm. my boyfriend because this was so about so much more than that for me. And um, appreciate that. But Carl. you know, I, I so. No, yeah, of course. So, but so, it, so it's not. This wasn't comprehensive. Everything I said that was wrong with this piece. There was there was more. Uh, but the second thing I would say that I, I had meant to put in that thread, but in the in the heat of my tirade, I, I forgot was the Business Insider editors that I ended up being in contact with after this story dropped were actually very good to me and were responsive. And I think I don't think it's that these outlets want to be doing bad journalism per se. It's a whole combination of factors that lead to bad journalism. And then there's a lack of accountability so that they don't necessarily correct it. Um, And so I was really grateful for those business insider editors. And I, I I felt a little bad because we had some very nice email exchanges and I didn't mean to just wholesale throw everyone under the bus. Um, But it was egregious. This article was just abominable and, to, to know how much work went into stopping it from spreading further, uh, I, I just saw why false narratives are able to spread so easily because it's so hard to stop them. And it took a lot of effort to stop them. So for those of you who did not or are not on Twitter or didn't see this, Carly went off on Twitter um, on this Business Insider piece. And, and look, I know you didn't want to draw more attention to bad journalism um, during the mayor's race. And this piece was so bad. Yeah. That in an environment where everybody wanted to write anything they and everything they possibly could on Andrew Yang, literally every major news outlet refused <laughs> to write this story. But but it's worth noting that they said that after we were really proactive, myself and other women on from the presidential campaign were really proactive about saying, hey, I know you're interested right. in this or sniffing around this. Here's the full story. Like we we did a little bit have to spoon feed that to people. And then once it was spoon fed to them, they were like, oh, yeah, like, yes, yeah, but that's like a comp scene's job, right? You show them like a good comp scene like shows them facts and tells them to stop writing, you know, things that aren't factual. Uh, on your thread, just to summarize, you said uh, one problem with the, the piece was that there was one source, <laughs> anonymous source made it seem like she was 10 people. Um, and she was actually a, uh, she said she was a staffer when she was a volunteer, um, did not work for, she was part time. Um, there was someone that, uh, implied a very serious allegation of rape on the campaign, which was proven factually incorrect. Those two people were dating, which is 
ridiculous. Well, and you, and to be fair, you can be raped even if you're dating a person. In this case, it was not a rape. And that woman was happy to say, yeah, we were dating. Like it wasn't like the, um, you had both parties consenting on record, um, or at least on background. They claim that you were a victim in, um, to like toxic male culture with, uh, and left out of strategic decisions, which, which was unfair to you. I mean, they said that you all crafted a strategy that essentially led to me being doxxed on 4chan and I just knew nothing about and you were just it. As a hapless victim. I, I found that so infantilizing. Yeah. And like and, and also at one point, a friend of mine pointed this out, actually, somebody who knows me well. In the article, they said that I blamed myself for the doxing incident um at, at some point or whatever. And my friend was like, do they fucking know you? Like, in what universe would you ever blame yourself for that? Right. Like, they don't know I was like, that's so true. That ma- that paints me as this, like, oh, like I, you know, like I, I must have done something wrong. It's my fault. Like, fuck that. This was not my fault. A bunch of impotent assholes on 4chan like are creeps and you know did creepy things to me. Like, that's their problem. You can read her thread. We'll post it in the, in the description of this episode about basically she just kind of eviscerates this article, which was very, very bad and very, very incorrect. They were uh, look. We hired three hundred people in. About three months, like there were plenty of uh, like culture challenges in, in running an outsider campaign and building that fast. Like I'm not going to sit here and say this campaign was perfect, but this piece was garbage. Yeah. And but my question is, that's not really the point. The point is, um, kind of what we we're talking about before is narratives in the media. And I am on the point, like I'm okay with if a reporter wants to publish that crap. I don't like it. I think it's stupid. But their peers should not be piling on and continuing the same narrative. Their peers should be calling them out for for like the, the factual inaccuracies. But it's really we're now learning that the peers, like the journalists, are not doing this themselves. So, what would your advice be, given that type of piece we saw at Business Insider and stuff we've seen both in the mayor's race and the presidential race and just press interaction in general? What can uh how if you're like listening to this podcast, how do you identify when it's BS? And how do you identify when it's real? Like, how do you be discerning as a reader? Yeah. I mean, it depends on the kind of piece that you're reading, right? I think I think you made this point, Zach. Something that I didn't even get into in my tweet thread was for this business inside of piece You didn't have enough time to elaborate on Twitter? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was, yeah. Well, I, I, I no, definitely... No one does. That's the point. a long thread. Something I, I didn't even get into was the way that this piece was written, and this is going to be there'll be principles to take away from this, right? Was she frequently said, some former staffers said, right? And, and she she used these vague uh, like identifiers or vague adjectives like some, where it was clearly to hide the fact that she had like one, two, two people right. out of 250 saying something. Um, and I think really keeping an eye out for those kind of non-specific words can be helpful if you're a media consumer um, because it usually means that the reporter is trying to juice their story. Like it's more accurate to give the exact number. And if you have an interest in not giving the exact number, you probably have an agenda. If a reporter is not using a number, if they're using words like some or many or multiple, your radar should be going up because um, let's think about it. Like three is a crowd. Essentially, after three, four, five, six, seven, those those are big enough to publish. And if you're a journalist, you would publish that. So many usually means either two or or multiple or some usually means two or a small sampling. For example, when a lot of people came after Venture for America and Andrew's work there and the employees there and what they did, they did dozens of interviews and they got a whole bunch of positive things to say. But what they had was a couple small people say constructive criticism like any organization would have. 
They quoted those that said some or multiple sources said X. And that's when you should think critically is like, uh, are they, they interviewed a lot of people. There are probably a lot of good stuff that was said. Does that feel accurately represented? I think the biggest thing is we have a problem with scope in the world, right? Which is you could have, if the media is hyper-focused on one issue, it makes that issue seem like it's looming very, very large. And it may or may not be, right? Like the number of incidences of X can be made to seem like there are many more than they actually are if the media is hyper-focused on the issue of X. So I think bearing that in mind, just, just thinking like, what is the, what is the denominator in any given story? Or what is the denominator sort of in a global context of like, it is very helpful. And if you don't have that answer, then just take it with a grain of salt. Let's say you're a boss and you have, you've had a hundred people work for you and you had a great relationship with 98 of them, but you had to fire two. And now you didn't do it. Let's say you didn't break the law, you know, physically harm anybody, nothing, but you just had to fire and they weren't good employees. If a reporter interviewed those two people, they could factually accurately say this. Multiple staffers had a severe issue with Zach Grauman's leadership. You could say that statement yeah. or with Carly Riley's leadership. Right. Is. And that is factually correct because they were two and they did. But it's also factually correct to say the vast majority did not. The vast majority right. had a wonderful experience. And it's like not a but story not a to be story. like, hey, a bunch of people like, like were satisfied at their job. Right. <laughs> like, no one wants to say that. So. And, and those people are not the ones going to reporters like, hey, boy, do I have a scoop for you? Yeah. Like nothing happened. I was treated with a basic level of respect. Like <laughs> I did not leave the campaign and run to a reporter to be like, boy, don't you got to cover the fact that yes. nothing bad happened to me at the hands of my bosses. Yeah. The vast majority of people had an enjoyable experience working with Andrew Yang and Venture for America and are proud to have worked there. And that was always left off. So that is something um, where I think, whereas we read as readers, um, to expect the media to autocorrect there is um, a fool's errand, in my opinion. And it's up to us to identify, eh, you know, like have your smell test change a little bit. Well, and the, and the biggest thing, and, and I, you know, we've now officially gone on a, a full tangent here from our climate change initial story, but I uh, was just to see how the industry that supports the media industry, like the ecosystem around that, whatever you want to call it, consultants, et cetera, et cetera, have sort of, have seemingly come to just accept this as being the way it is. Like mm -hmm. I was told by, by professionals in the industry yeah. that this was fairly par for the course and that, you know, basically don't worry about this article. It's, standard, like kind of industry standard. And, you know, you had people from the New York times and Politico retweet this article. Like, and, and I, that was what was so jarring to me was like, Oh wow. We've all just kind of like laid down and died and been like, yep. Okay. Whatever. Walk all over right. me. And like, that's just very anathema to the way I'm wired. Yes, that is true. <laughs> um, so that, that was in some ways the most interesting thing too, was to, to see that. The other rule of thumb I have for people reading articles, if you see a reporter and they quote, they're quoting someone and they include the and so's, the likes mm. and the ums. To me, that should be, your radar should be going up. Why am I including those? Now, does there are some reporters, there are very, very few that do this, that always include the likes and ums, no matter what. They will quote you directly what you said, which I think is some form of integrity. But it's very difficult to do because you're going to quote a lot of people. You're naturally not picking up on the ums. Um, so usually you take those out because it's easier and... Frankly, it doesn't make the person look bad. Um, so when they're included, there's usually an agenda. An agenda. It's trying to make them look ditzy or unsure or at the prepared. New York Times. Well, so <laughs> that's where, like, you take a quote out of context, include the and so like ums. 
Um, I think you're driving it. And then you're like, what are you talking about? I just reported I just accurately what, you said. what like, happened. Sure, you did, but you had a part. And so look, um, yeah. you want to quote me there? You're going to have my answer. Look, um, like that's a thing that people say, and I'm fine if they do it every single time. But I don't. That's think, you just want consistency, and you want you want equal treatment across all people. Those are my two guys. When you see vague uh, quantifying terms like many or multiple or some, be careful. And when you see and likes and ums and sos, be careful as well. That's my that's my two and cents. If there's folks. too many anonymous sources in one story, ask yourself if maybe some of them might be the same person. Yeah, I mean, like, I mean you've said this well. It's like yeah. anonymous, and you said you were upset about. Um, being an anonymous source is a really powerful tool for women because the, 100%. the power has been skewed. It, it's a powerful tool for anyone who's been exploited yes, or abused. True. And so when you use it manipulatively, as when you use it as a way to juice your story, which mm. is what happened in this Business Insider case, you actually blunt that tool, that very critical tool becomes weaker for every next person who wants to use it honorably. And I think that's why stories like this undermine the greater cause that really matters, which is standing up for women in the workplace. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. this article actually did a detriment to that. Right. It, it, it wasn't furthering that cause. Yeah. So anyways, we enough digress. on that. Okay. Uh, so that's what, so one thing. <laughs> so anyway, CNN's going to talk a lot about climate change. Carly's in the hot come, take apparently. is a new narrative. The new boogeyman's probably climate change. Uh, we'll see what happens. But this and, is not my hot take. This is the Project Veritas CNN person okay. saying this. Oh, don't back down. CNN Stick to your guns, Carl. I believe. Fine. fine. You're into this. Fine. We're putting you on the, yeah, you've been, you've been correct so far. You called, uh, you called Robin Hood. You've called a few. Gift goats. Gift goats doing great. Um, we never bought one because we're poor. I did. Have, I had people reached out. I, I missed it. I apologize to everyone who DM'd me on Instagram, I think, and said like, hey, I'll lend you money to buy a gift goat. And I missed it. I apologize. I'm terrible. You didn't check your DMs guess. and people lent you money? What is wrong with you? <laughs> they didn't. They just said they would. They would. <laughs> oh my gosh. I give up. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com yang. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. The FTC is suing Facebook, um, attempting to break them up. Um, and uh, under the leadership of who's someone who seems to be a, a, a true badass, um, or at least aligned with a lot of our things, Lena Khan, who's the... Um, 
you read about this woman. So she's the new FTC chair. She's 32. She's 32. Like, come on. Like, you're embarrassing. That's me. amazing. Yeah. She's um, a badass. Yeah. She wrote a paper in 2017 called Amazon's Anti- Antitrust Paradox. Paper went viral in these influential circles. Let's call it like, it went law school viral, I guess. Um, and she argued that the dominance of the tech titans like Amazon show that the US antitrust ta- laws are broken. Um, because they're focused on consumer pricing instead of basically like competition. Um, and so the argument is like, well, what do we care? It's not a monopoly if consumers are paying less money. And their argument is that, well, that's a dated view of monopoly. So basically, the FTC has been filing a bunch of antitrust lawsuits against a number of big tech companies. The news this week is that a judge basically didn't so didn't laugh the FTC out of the courtroom, but was like dismissed the case before it even got its day in court. And that was shocking. Like that, that was not what people were expecting. And and the judge gave the FTC basically 30 days, if I'm not to mistaken, be better. to like to improve their case and come back with an improved case before it's able to move forward. I, the media so has not said this, so I'm going to say it. This was Lena's first shot. Like, some of the things the judge is saying, Judge James Bosberg, that's kind of a cool name. Bosberg. Anyway, he said a couple of things. One, you concluded that Facebook, you being the FTC, concluded that Facebook has a market share of 60%, but back that up with no data, no obvious reasoning. So that feels like a rookie. I don't know enough about loss. I don't know, but that feels like a... No, no. Look look up for me right now. When, when was Lena appointed to the FTC chair. I believe it was in the last like month. Like yeah. the errors oh, so this... that, that exist in this case at present predate. Okay. So not authority. Lena, but still like so, she's got to know it's, this is. I, I think, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but and so, and so the, the thing is now is like her first real big move, honestly, as FTC chair is going to be spending the next 30 days fixing this, <laughs> working to strengthen this case. Like she's now inherited this problem. And I think the real measure of her, and it's a tall order, so I don't necessarily think we should write her off, even if she doesn't do it, if she doesn't, if it doesn't work. But the real measure of her is going to be over the next thirty days when they come back to the judge. The big hurdle they're fighting, though, is that that Facebook bought Instagram in twenty twelve and WhatsApp in twenty fourteen, and those were both reviewed by um, Antitrust Court at the time, and they found no problem. And then, so the the judge is like, "Well, why?" Why did you wait so long if you really... Now, 10 years later, yeah. you're bringing an issue so the, And that's not Lena's fault. Um, that is a number of reasons. Um, so I'm curious your thoughts on... Andrew talks about this a lot. He thinks, um, you know, they're not a traditional monopoly, but they are... Uh, they're selling our data. We get the product for free and they sell our data. And a lot of people don't know that. They don't know the depths of it. There's so many different sides of this. Um, but thoughts on your thoughts on this in general, Carl? And then where do you think this goes? Yeah. Where do we think we land? Well... The angle that I always, that that I feel like has been missing when I've, the little bit that I've kind of read and dug into this has always been the, okay, what does breaking these companies up mean for consumers, right? Like, like for you and me, why do I care about this? What does it mean for me? And like, what are the pros of doing this? And and you talked about David data privacy. I think I don't understand how separating Instagram and WhatsApp from Facebook does anything for my data privacy. It doesn't. So and that's Andrew's point. Yeah. So, so I, I think that's, so I'm like, okay. What good, and he's then, always said that. What good does it do if you make another sure. Google Maps and a bunch of like five smaller Googles doesn't make Google, doesn't like increase competition per se. Maybe a little. Well, but, but it, and it doesn't I guess, have the data I guess, is, that, yeah. is, is, is that the argument? Is that more competition will mean more 
people trying to woo consumers. And one of the ways they may try to woo us is by having better data privacy settings. Like maybe that's the roundabout argument, but frankly, most people don't actually give that much of a shit about data, data privacy. Like they're like, I got nothing to hide. Fine. Take my data. Like, so I don't see that playing out. I think the other, the other argument, I guess, as I've kind of dug into this is like, all right, it increases competition for small businesses, for smaller players. That's great. I, I don't understand how breaking up again, Instagram and Facebook does that just set the precedent that Facebook couldn't buy up its competition in the future? Like, I don't really understand how breaking those up necessarily protects smaller businesses. Um, so th- this is the piece that I've always been confused on is great. In theory, I guess I'm for breaking up big tech, but I don't actually really understand how it helps me or. Well, the thing is that all the data is, <laughs> is owned by Facebook, right? Or these, these three or four companies. And the problem is if you want to market in the 21st century, you have to use Facebook. And that's like the, that's what you're trying or to Google. avoid, right? That's what you're trying. But no, you have to use Facebook, like King. Um, and so we had a we had a conversation on e-commerce, and we talked about if you're a like it's it's amazing for these young companies to come on, like you can hyper target and not have to carry inventory because you know exactly who's buying in real time. But at the same time, you have to use Facebook, and is that good or bad for? Okay, but that's because all of the users are there. No, of course. That's where consumers are. And that's not changing if you separate Instagram and Facebook. Like, Agreed. none of Agreed. this is, I guess, my point is that, like, I don't understand. Breaking up is not, breaking up sounds changes. good. It's not going to solve it all. Sure. Um, and, and, you know, so I'm, I'm intrigued by this idea, which I think you got into, or, or Lena talks about this, and, and other people in the wake of this court decision have been saying this. We really need to update our antitrust laws correct. to better reflect and and encapsulate sort of the internet age. And and maybe that would be what we need to solve these things that I'm talking about. But otherwise, I sort of feel like this feels like an, you know, an elite legal battle. And I don't really care in the sense that like, I don't really know what's in it for me if my data is still just going to be sold ad nauseum and Facebook's still going to have 10 trillion users. And you know, know, um, it's fun for me, Carl's like the, the let's just take like the conservative argument here where it's like, this is bipartisan lobby, but there is a certain element was like, Hey, I'm conservative, I'm pro-business. And like, if you're a country on a global scale, you want your cash cows to kick butt and then you tax them and you tax your billionaires, uh, the people make billions off it. um, And that's good for government programs. Like you want cash cows to fund your government. That all, like, I don't necessarily fully agree with that argument, but I I see the logic until, until you start to see what just happened and ProPublica did a bombshell report that said, like, we've known that the Facebooks, Amazons don't pay any taxes. So the company itself is not paying any fucking tax and the billionaires aren't paying any taxes. So well, that, that was a joke. I was going to make you said in there. We're just like, we're just doing <laughs> nothing. We're just get letting our rich guys run around. It's ridiculous. Though I will say here's, here's them. Like, there's like this like secret Republican in me and I'm a big fan of like, you know, let's tax these people. The whatever. Tufts, Vermont I, liberals, secret Republican. Tell me more about her, Carly. Well, well just more that like, you know, and, and Jack Dorsey is not like broadly representative, but like, he donated a third of his wealth, like a billion dollars this year towards like COVID prevention or COVID research or whatever the heck, uh, women's, women's education, education and UBI. And I was like, women's education and UBI are basically the two things that I think are going to like save the world. You know, women's education, I think that included like contraception. Like there's so much research on how contraception is a game changer. No country has lifted itself out of uh, poverty in the last 50 years without expanding access to tra- contraception to women. So so somebody like Jack Dorsey, uh, for me, it was like that billion dollars was better off in his hands than in the government's hands where it gets siphoned off to like 10 trillion different, you know, little yeah. At least bureaucratic in that projects example, and, and this and that. Probably, but, right? yeah. 
Um, of course. And that's, that's just anecdotal. And in general, billionaires don't give nearly enough away. I, as cetera, someone who's worked with a lot of philanthropists, uh, that's true. You were, that was your game. Most of them no idea decade. what the hell they're doing. Not that the government does yeah. either, but you know, like it's like, right. yeah, no, no, I'm, I'm a fan. Going. I don't know. Hey, at I'm least the government just theoretically checks and balances. Theoretically. I, um, I will say the last thing on this, unless you have other super hot takes that you want to share, I, I do get a kick out of a bipartisan element of this because it's this fun thing where you have Democrats just in general are in favor of antitrust and government regulation. Yeah. And conservatives just hate big tech. <laughs> they just like hate Jack Dorsey, yeah, and they like they they're like we're being censored. They think it's and so, yeah, and so like we we have this funny like you know come together for very different reasons. Well, that's <laughs> what I'm surprised that hasn't happened, happened yet. on like, this issue. This is one know, thing everybody kind of agrees on. Like, yeah, you're kind of too big. Like, there's a problem here. I know, um, and maybe it speaks to the weakness of the government's case that it, it hasn't been able to happen of yet. Course. I don't know. Who knows? Um, so this will be. You know, like Zuckerberg has done things that objectively, whether you're really loose, you want to evolve your definition of antitrust laws or stick with the conservative ones. Things where he has been quoted in the email, I think it was 2000. I'm going to look this right up. It was, uh, I don't know. I remember when he actually, I don't know the date, sorry. But he said in an email, it's better to buy than compete. Um, in 2013, there was a, a social media company called Circle that was growing Um and they were competing a, a competing social network. And when they couldn't buy it, they just cut off access to its data and systems because that's how they were getting a number of, uh, uh, of new users and such. And so they stopped. We went from gaining 600,000 new users a day to zero. Um, and that's like what Facebook Yeah, that's a problem. Do. And that to me is a question of, I, I guess this antitrust regulation, like breaking up Instagram and Facebook prevents that. I, I, I'm just not clear enough, I suppose, on whether or not yeah. Yeah, yeah. retroactively making changes to the structure of Facebook prevents future actions by Facebook um, to to suppress competition. Uh, presumably, yes, in which case, great, and I'm in favor I'm of I'm not it. an expert. Maybe we should get um, an antitrust law. I'm curious of what, um, I'd be fascinated to learn what was happening during like the Rockefeller age where you had, um, oh yeah, like, you know, like what, and like, it was more of the Wild West. Can I give a fun Rockefeller story? Go for it. Okay, this is from AP US History. I learned this. Um, so John Rockefeller, at like the height of his, you know, fortune, success, like richest dude in the world, was taking a tour of one of his like oil factories and they were putting the oil in the barrels. And he asked them how many drops of glue they used to seal the barrels of oil. And they told him, and he was like, all right, like try it with like with one fewer and one fewer. And basically was like to, to save costs was like, how few drops of glue can we use to successfully seal these, these barrels of oil? And it was just like 16 year old me was like, that's what it takes to be successful. Like that <laughs> level of just detail. I'm like, God, how will I ever like compete with something that, that like you have all the money in the world and you're still like how many drops of glue i want to save that not even half a That's cent so you know meanwhile you probably so. got some like poor like factory oil rig worker oh. uh, who's got like rich ass john rockefeller breathing down his neck being like this asshole <laughs> first you said five <laughs> drops now it's four <laughs> next thing i don't know he wants you to lick it shut like an envelope <laughs> what the heck anyway uh fascinating to watch my prediction on this, and I'd love your thought, I think they either were either going to F it up, like government's not going to get it done, or they're going to get something done that like Facebook just kind of skirts around, like something stupid. Oh, like, yeah. You have to break up your companies, but they still kind of own them. Like, you know. Well, an interesting take I heard is that big tech is basically going to start funneling money to the conservatives and, and to conservative members of Congress, because again, their their horse in this race is basically like, we don't like big tech. Yeah. So the, the, the argument I was hearing was like, if they just give enough money to Republicans, they'll kind of back off and wow. we'll end up with some watered down version that really doesn't do tick. anything. 
who knows? But I, I think that's an interesting take and probably not not impossible by any means. I want to talk about this. It's um, people are very upset right now, particularly Republicans. So the Olympic trials are happening. So the U.S. Olympic Hammer Thor Gwen Berry um, protested the national anthem, but in a, um, a way it hadn't been done before. I think there's been times when, and obviously like famous instances where people have raised a fist and, and kneeling for the anthem, not at the Olympics, is, is obviously a very powerful thing. And it was, um, I'm, you and I are both on record, like being very supportive of, of Colin Kaepernick and, and that movement. In this instance, she put a shirt over her head. And like turned her back on the flag. She something. turned her back on the flag. and um... Yeah, I have no problem with this at all. I find it to be honestly shocking that we're even having this conversation again after I felt like we'd come to this agreement as a country that like Colin Kaepernick kneeling was actually not a big deal because, hey, you know, like then there was looting and rioting and all these things. And it was like, well, we tried to kneel and you didn't listen. So now we're getting looting and rioting. So the fact that like now somebody's turning their back, once again, a nonviolent action, and we have to like debate, like, is this right? Like the, the big question is like, how do you want black people to protest, right? Like, like, how do you want them to express their frustration? She has a platform. Like, forget what you think the, not you specifically, but the generic you think about the state of racism in this country. Clearly, she feels very strongly about it. She has a platform. She's choosing to protest in a nonviolent way. I, I, great. Like, it's, it's, it's just so strange to me that we're once again making something like this a thing after we saw that there were really, in my opinion, like, there are much worse ways that we could protest to make this point. I agree with that. And, I think um, everybody has so the right great. to protest. So great. Make your statement. The reason I was like a little more, because I was never really had the this inkling, but it was the what made it feel different this time was that it's the Olympics. Like your, it is is two things I think globally, and I think it's unanimously globally. One, it's a time where all the countries put aside their differences and compete. It's always been a symbol of, of harmony and peace and representing your national pride, and you choose to go represent your country. Like it's not like you're a football player, you play for the 49ers. You're like, I make me do this. I think there's you choose to go play football for a private business and you're not representing the United States. You're barely representing the team you play on because they trade you so, so often, but you are choosing to represent the United States of America. And you, when someone, and you show that like, and, but I'm, you know, I'm going to look at the flag feels, I understand the I, reasons I just, are, are, are very just, but it's still, it you feels live off. here. You're a gifted athlete. You live here. You're a gifted athlete. This is your passion. The two things can exist at once, which is you want to be able to compete at the highest levels at the sport that you love, right? And you can feel really not prideful in your country, right? And, and, and people can be mad that she's not proud of her country, but to me, she has every right to express it this way. Like she's not hurting anybody. I, I just, I, I, I fully see where she's coming from with it and I have no problem with it. And I think it's one of these stupid, I, I think the fight is even stupid. Like I just find everything about it, meaningless, symbolic, let her do what she wants. She's drawing attention to this issue. You know, for, for people like you and me who spend our time on the left and listening to the left, like we're very aware of this issue. And so it can feel like, okay, we all already know about this, but half the country doesn't know about this or like hasn't accepted this problem yet. Now, do I think her turning her back on the flag makes them see this problem? No, I think no, it makes them think more, more divisive. in their own anger. Yeah. Fine. But like, but look, that I disagree aside, that you're like, she's not hurting anybody. Like I do think it's divisive. Um, who, who is she hurting? I don't know. The little kid that's like, why aren't mommy, why aren't we saying like, why don't we like the flag here? No, 
Great. And then you, no, of course not. Then great. That's a great conversation. Hey honey, she's really frustrated because there are some people who feel like this country doesn't look out for them the way they look out for, it looks out for other people. Like you start that conversation with your little kid and it's not harmful. It's, you know, it's doing exactly what she intends for it to do, which is to start a dialogue, not a war. That's not the point of the Olympics was my, my point. It's a really rare opportunity to show that we're one nation um, after all of our differences, but. Um, but it, she doesn't feel that way. She feels that we're, we, we have two different Americas for if you're black and if you're white. So I think that's the thing you're trying to suggest. And that's where you can, you may disagree with her philosophy, right? right? Like, but, but then, you know, then this is a conversation about whether or not like how bad racism is, which we don't want to have. Yeah. I think you and I both very much believe that it exists yeah. obviously. And it's a huge problem. So like, you know, you don't want to go down that, that that's then a different rabbit hole, like whether or not it's bad enough to warrant this. Right. And, and that's fundamentally what Republicans are saying is, Oh, it's not bad enough to warrant this. Right. right? Um, and, that's, and, and I and haven't been, right I haven't been tracking. Yeah. yeah, totally. And, and I, and, and then it's just like, oh, where do you draw the line problem? I, I haven't followed the coverage by Republicans on this because I do not care. I know what they're going to say. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I, but I would be curious to see the comparison of like how they covered the, you know, January 6th Capitol insurrection and this, like I could very much see like them being given kind of equivalent coverages as if these are in any way commensurate. And it's like, it's that stuff that just makes it feel so ridiculous. Like, Agreed. okay. She turned her back. Like she made a symbolic gesture about a problem. She sees like, I just, oof, I don't care. Fair enough. I, I Fair enough. totally support her right to do that. Last thing before we let you go, Carl, Britney Spears. Oh, I, you stole my thunder. I, I thought you were going to say something else. And I was going to have to be the one to bring up Britney Spears. I brought Spears, it up. I did it. You brought I'm it up. I'm not following this. I, I, You're she not, was my do you first, know anything? I know this. Britney Spears was my first love. <laughs> she has had a roller coaster of, uh, let's call it a relationship with the media. And, uh, yeah, this is bringing it full circle. I mean, this is another just story about media narratives. There's nothing the media loves more than building up like a beautiful young woman so that they can down. like South document her fall or create her fall. Uh, it's just the most like it's the oldest media trick in the book is just the way they, they treat women. It's a really fascinating uh, window into an element of our system that we rarely get to see this whole conservatorship system. Do you know? No, you have to tell us what happened. Okay. Know. Okay. So essentially for the last, I don't know, decade plus, Britney Spears has been in a conservatorship after her breakdown in call it, I don't know, 2008 or whatever. She shaved her head. She attacked a paparazzi car. Um, her dad basically took control of her entire life, her finances, who can visit her, where she can go birth control, like everything about her life is controlled currently by her father and has been for over a decade now. Um, this is like unprecedented as far as I have seen. Um, usually conservatorships are for people who are in their, you know, they're elderly and they physically cannot take care of themselves anymore. She was under the conservatorship during her last like worldwide tour. Like after she released the circus album, she was touring internationally, making wow, millions upon millions of dollars and wasn't allowed to make a decision about being on birth control or, you know, who got to come visit her. So, um, it, and, and for a long time, there's been this like grassroots free Britney movement that have, right. that have like been sort of seen sometimes as like conspiracy theorists that she's like sending them secret message through her Instagram posts and she's secretly right. miserable. And it's, it's always not been clear if they're right or not because she hasn't been, she hasn't spoken publicly really about the conservatorship. Um, but she finally spoke out last week, last week, I guess. Recently, um, yeah. and to a judge, um, saying that the conservatorship is abusive, 
saying that she's been forced to work seven days a week for the last decade. Basically, she has no control over her own life. She wants to have another child. She wants to marry her current boyfriend. She's not allowed to because of the conservatorship. She has an IUD in that they won't let her take out. Um, She had to, she, she and her boyfriend just went to Maui on vacation. She said that um, there were certain like work agreements like she had to meet before her father would let her go to Maui. Like just crazy things for a 40 year old woman who's, a total superstar. So no, you know, the, the total prevailing narrative right now is like, this is clearly ridiculous. Britney Spears should not be in a conservatorship. Um, this is abusive. And, and there's been some things made of like, this is, this should give people insights into the way that people with disabilities are treated in general. And that we shouldn't just take this to just be a, a problem for Britney, that there's a lot of people with disabilities who are treated very poorly and actually have, should have a lot more autonomy in their lives. That's part of the conversation. I will say, again, being the media or being the skeptic in general about narratives that I am, because the entire narrative is that, I am curious what the rationale has been for the last decade plus by judges to say that she's needed a conservator. Um, You know, That's that's true. We haven't had the other side of the story. Clearly there is, we don't know all of what she's struggling with, what her mental health conditions are. She clearly has a bit of a mental health struggle. So, you know, I don't want to, again, I'm never going to just totally bandwagon something. Um, one argument was the last thing I'll say. One argument was that she was at risk of losing her kids back in 2008. She was going to lose custody of her kids. And so that she voluntarily, because she did voluntarily enter into this conservatorship as a way to keep her kids. And then once you're in a conservatorship, it's actually very hard to get out of it. And the legal structures in place are very much set up so that conservatives can't often get out of this easily. Um, so it, it could be that was the situation. She, in an, in a moment of desperation, wanted to make sure she could keep her kids entered into this and then has been stuck in this like legal gridlock. I don't know. Uh, but I, I think it's actually just fascinating. I think it's fascinating on a whole bunch of levels. I'm a pop culture junkie. So I love it from that standpoint. The depth um, but- of issues we're talking about with you, Carl, always fascinating. What, <laughs> what's your call? Are they going to let her out? I, I, it seems like, yes. Um, she has to file a petition to be released from this conservatorship. I think that hasn't quite happened yet, but she just made a move to retain new legal counsel. Um, And the just national attention around this seems to be reaching a feverish enough pitch that it seems like there'll be a a change that'll come. Thank you for that update. Carly, Riley, always a pleasure to have you. Uh, Thank you, as always. We'll do it again soon. Thank you for joining Yang Speaks, girl. Thank you. All right, talk to y'all soon.